You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, my name's Dean, and we're going through the Bible in a year, a different book of the Bible every week. Thanks for gathering with your church this morning. This week we are in Song of Solomon, uh, sometimes also called the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon. Uh, so I'm getting ready to pray, and if you have kids, we have a wonderful children's ministry, and you've been warned. Uh, so let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word. Uh, we are thankful that we have a blessed assurance in Christ that in him we not only belong to him, but we remain with him. That God's grace is greater than our sin. And we're aware today as the people of God who gather of our great need for your grace, that apart from you we are people that are left on our own, standing before you covered in our sin. But because of the grace of you, who did not spare his own son, We can be people who are forgiven, who have access to you, who are in relationship with you, who are called your sons and daughters. So as we speak through this important topic in the Song of Solomon this morning, I ask that you be with me as I speak. I also ask that you be with all the churches in our city as they gather today, that we'll all lift up the name of Christ. Please keep the enemy out of this place, out of our city, out of our churches. In the name of Jesus, amen. So the Song of Solomon, uh, famous book of the Bible, but oftentimes not used very often or preached very often, really functions at two main levels. One is a guide really to the purposes of marriage that God first instituted in the Garden of Eden to point us towards God's design, really kind of getting it right, going back to it, what's been broken, what's been lost in our own lives, in our own culture. And the second thing is a very poetic metaphor of Christ's love for the church. And the book is very metaphoric and that can actually make preparing for it, reading it on your own and preaching it pretty complicated. It takes some time to read. It's one of those kind of books where you read a little part and you go, wait, I gotta read that again. That shouldn't keep us from reading it, just the acknowledgement that it's definitely a, a difficult book to often understand because it's so metaphoric over and over again. The song unapologetically celebrates the the physical dimension of just human love in marriage. And this portion of God's word can't be neglected, like we we have to make sure we study it and that we read it and that we know it because it's going to bring us clarity in this very sexually confused world. But not just confused, very sexually committed world to pushing a worldview and a revolution and an ethic that's shaped by a secular understanding rather than by God's word. See, if the church avoids teaching about human sexuality, a void will be easily filled by the culture. So guess what's happened? The church hasn't talked much about sexuality, we've always been committed to it here, we think it's so important, but guess what's happened as a result? Christians, people who love the Lord, who know their Bibles, who would agree with all the fundamental doctrines of the faith when it comes to the issues of sexuality have gotten, for lack of a better word, squishy, or have kind of gotten agnostic, or are denying altogether the things that God affirms, and affirming altogether the things that God denies, all while still maintaining orthodox views on so many other things. How does this happen? Like how can you believe that there was a virgin birth and a bodily resurrection and 
Even miracles like Jesus turning the water into wine and walking on the water and feeding 5,000 and and all the things the scripture tells us, yet we don't believe God when he tells us he made man and a woman for his purposes. Easy answer. The culture has influenced us. Relationships have influenced us. Sentimentality, pressure, so many different things rather than actually God's word. See, we're told in the scriptures that husbands are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And therefore, love as it is expressed by husbands to their wives is to be reflective of Christ's love for the church for all the world to see. See, the Song of Solomon serves as a beautiful reminder that a godly marriage reflects the Lord's actual love for his people. That a passionate marriage reflects God's passionate love for his people. Song of Solomon 5, verse 2 I was sleeping, but my heart was awake. A sound, my love was knocking. The book of Revelation, we see Jesus say, behold, I stand and knock. And that's actually not an evangelistic passage as sometimes it's actually presented. He's speaking to the church in that setting. He's saying, my bride, my people, like like I am here, I'm knocking, like, like I desire to be with you. I desire a relationship with you. And one of the things that makes the song just kind of difficult to figure out as you work through just the flow and those kind of things is there's different people speaking. Sometimes it's it's the person who's identified as the woman, sometimes the person identified as the man that's speaking, other times it seems like a third person, maybe a group of people who are usually identified as as some unmarried women and, and friends of the main woman character in the song and they inject some thoughts here and there into it. And it's not a narrative, it's really a collection of poems. And I don't even know if preaching verse by verse through it's the best approach, it's almost more thematic and, and more seeing the big picture of what's happening. The best kind of label, that those of you kind of like categories, the best label that can be assigned to this book is really kind of love poetry. It's found in the wisdom literature of the Bible, but here it's more of a, a love poem put into song, uh, which I guess really is songwriting in general. If you think of your favorite love songs, maybe think of the song you danced to at your wedding or the song you want to dance to at your wedding, whatever it might be. Uh, that's kind of a, it's like an ancient version of that we could say. And here we're presented with a shepherd and a shepherdess, and the setting is this really kind of fruitful, flowery, rural landscape of which a vineyard is the example that's given. And there's a place to kind of start in the poetry. It's, I think it's chapter, for us just this morning, trying to cover one book in one setting, I think chapter two is kind of the place to start. Um, back when you were engaged, or, or if you're engaged now, uh, one thing you often hear people say, I, I you know, walk with a lot of, of young engaged couples, uh, after like, it gets really close to the day, like, like really close, maybe a month out, two, two months out, you know, the bride and her mom have been fighting over and over again, and there's just drama everywhere, and you're doing RSVPs, and there's so many little details still to figure out, and you still gotta do this and that, and oh man, we invited those people, we didn't think they're actually gonna come, dang, we're over capacity, you know, th- th- those type of things. What, what you get to a point where you, you hear the bride go, I'm just over it and ready to be married. Like, yeah, I'm excited for my wedding, but I'm just over all the stuff, and I'm just ready to be married is a common thing. And here's what the book of Song of Solomon tells us. In chapter two, verse seven. Young women of Jerusalem, I charge you 
by the gazelles and the wild does of the field. All of our hunters just perked up all of a sudden. It's like, what, did he say does? Do not stir up, I guess that's buck, sorry, or awaken love until the appropriate time. The poem says, hey, don't stir up love too early. See, the caution here that's being given is so important to the song's betrayal, really portrayal of the beauty and power of love, that that language is repeated three times. And repetition matters a lot in the Bible. We're told, you know, God is holy, holy, holy. You know, his greatest attributes. In verse, chapter three, verse five, we see the same thing. In chapter eight, verse four, we see it again. Young women of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. As in, there actually is a time designed by God for the fulfillment of these feelings and these passions to actually be played out and understood. See, the repetition is not because the, the songwriter here has reservations about the goodness of love and the goodness of sex. Rather, he is presenting it in the proper place within the confines that God has given us, which is marriage. And it actually depicts and praises, uh, you could say, the intensity of a unique, lifelong, committed relationship between a man and a woman. Ian Duguid, who I think is the best scholar in America on the Song of Solomon, and his commentary has been very helpful for me, he calls it friendship on fire. What an interesting way to describe marriage and what's happening here in Song of Solomon. Friendship on fire. The song compares waiting for marriage to guarding a vineyard. In the springtime, when things are in bloom, it, it causes the, the vineyard dresser to want to go forward, to be fruitful with it. But the woman here warns us of the little foxes that can damage the really kind of flat, the real fragile vineyard, the blossoms in the vineyard, with serious long-term consequences for the vine dresser, for the one farming this. She says in verse 15, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, for our vineyards are in bloom. As in, yes, we are blooming, but if we act too quickly and put our love in its non-proper place, it's gonna be like foxes who come and do damage. We're reminded here of the farmer who invests his energy in protecting the integrity of the vineyard. This is, Dig, this is Duguid here. That will, he will not regret later his efforts in doing so. Even though the benefits of this painful perseverance won't be reaped until the time is fully ripe. See, vineyard tending, I'm not an expert in it, but it's a long, patient process of waiting and watching, and which failure doesn't bring the whole endeavor to nothing. Failing here does not mean you're out of the vineyard business. The farmer who fails here doesn't have to give up the vineyard as simply damaged goods destroyed once and for all by the foxes. The allegory here, the metaphor, is that he can repent and rebuild the broken wall and then start once again to watch and to wait as it grows. Equally, while keeping the walls is important in vineyard tending, it's not the only thing. It's about taking care of really the tender blossoms that are part of it. See, tending your sexual vineyard, as Song of Solomon would talk about, is not simply about the action of sex. 
It's about protecting your mind from toxic lust that consumes you as a young man, oftentimes. What's on your computer screen, your phone, your laptop? It protects you as you tend your vineyard from pornography, all of which, like foxes coming in to damage the crop that's been grown, can have long-term damaging effects. Like you can have a vineyard whose walls are intact, but whose blossoms have been trampled. And as a result of that, it causes great anguish and time and pain. Nor does he say is watching the vineyard an end in itself, like the purpose of life is not the vineyard. Rather, it's a wonderful purpose to be able at the end of the process of your vineyard to present it, he's saying, to your lover in full bloom. So you can both enjoy it without regret or remorse. Like this is God's design for his people. And failure here should not lead us to guilt, but to repentance. And when God-enabled purity should not result in pride or self-righteousness or making a partner feel as if they're unworthy, but it should lead us to grace and to worship God for the fact that he is good. See, something's happening right now in, in, our, in our world, in a lot of just kind of online world, and it's that failures in the past of maybe how many in church leadership, let's say kind of evangelical kind of subculture, how it really shamed people in a lot of the purity conversations. Rather than going, hey, that's not the way to do it, let's do it a different way. Instead, it's been, let's just kind of throw it out altogether. And it's a common thing to see on social media or articles, even the New York Times has written about it, like an onslaught on what they call purity culture. Instead of just throwing out the bad, and I guess you could say tending to the vineyard and getting rid of the bad crop, they're trying to get rid of it all together. The Pew Research just did a study they just released yesterday. Of all, I'd already written my sermon, I was like, dang, I gotta get this back all in here. It's so important, it says that 50% of professing Christians believe that casual sex is okay. And by casual, I meant consenting adults. That was their definition of casual. 50% of Christians believe that it's fine. Believe that it's fine. Now, if you told me that 50% of Christians don't believe the resurrection, we'd be pretty upset, wouldn't we? But this is as clear in the scriptures as anything else. And 50% of believers, professing Christians, are saying, no thank you, it's fine. See, all human sexual desire is not sinful. And the Song of Solomon reminds us that. Here are two people that are wanting to be with each other. Like it's by God's design, the love between a man and a woman, that, that it finds this, this sexual expression to be good and fulfilling. And marriage is what he has given us for this expression to be carried out. I mean, Paul wrote this in the New Testament to the church in Corinth, which had so much sexual confusion. But because sexual immorality, he says in chapter seven, is so common, it's everywhere, it's rampant. This is in the first century. Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise, a wife to her husband. 
The chapter before in chapter six, he cites the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve being created male and female, the one flesh union as his justification for believing what he believed to be true about this. Song of Solomon is celebrating monogamous sexual union within the boundaries of marriage. And it also does so with discretion and with taste. And at the same time with romance and enthusiasm. And the song confronts one of the sadder mistakes of our culture as well. The idea that the early stages of romance are best and then marriage dulls the relationship. You know they call it the honeymoon phase when everything's wonderful and everything's great and then all of a sudden you hear the language like the old ball and chain and things such as that. Where Song of Solomon presents a couple who's growing together, who still has passion and love for each other years into their time together. That must be cultivated. And it's interesting because in the scriptures, and this is really important to know because I think we miss this sometimes, the Bible does not, this might be surprising to some of you, I'm not sure, the Bible really doesn't give a ton of what I would just call marriage advice. Just straight up advice. Not, not a ton. There's some there, but not a ton. Usually, the scriptures call us to God's design, to the beauty of marriage, to the purpose of marriage, to the self-sacrificial undertaking of marriage. More than here's six principles to try to get a little bit better at it. Now, are six principles to get a little better at it helpful? Sure, absolutely. But oftentimes what we're given in the scriptures is the gospel towards understanding marriage. It's the union of Christ and the church, it's sacrificial love. And it's interesting because in our culture it does kind of produce the ball and chain. Like in most romantic comedies, focus on the early chapters of a love story and everybody's just so all in and then there's, it gets more boring and it gets more difficult as time goes on. And the Song of Solomon is instructively very different. Listen to chapter four, verse seven. You are absolutely beautiful, my darling. There is no imperfection in you. So this is the communication to the spouse. But again, this book's metaphoric. Did you know that that's what the Lord can say about you? And does say about you? That you're absolutely beautiful? and that there's no imperfection in you? Now that might sound blasphemous. How could he say that about us? When you become a believer, you receive the righteousness of Jesus. Your sins are washed white as snow. You're declared not guilty of your sins. God sees you as somebody who is now worthy. Why? Because he has made you that way that he has sought you like the lover seeks after the loved. The songs are viewed as erotic. Back in the uh, the first few centuries, rabbis would not let people read it until they were 30 years old. And it may uh, be a little surprising to know that the Song of Solomon actually only talks about two different sexual encounters, only two, and there's no explicit details in them. Here's the first one, Song of Solomon, chapter five, verse one. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. 
I ate my honey tongue with my honey, I drank my wine with my milk. That's Bible for like, we slept together. But notice, my sister, my bride, who is this person first? Their sister in Christ. So there's already that companionship. And then a step further to actually the bride. The second sexual encounter is found in Song of Solomon 8 verse five. Under the apple tree I awakened you. There wasn't an awakening to talk about life or to go through the calendar or to plan the day. The rest of the song portrays romantic love and sexual desire that waits for the right time. And that's marriage, because God is never, ever, it's not that sex is the problem. When we've talked about this before, I've used the example, and if you've been here for a long time, you've heard it a hundred times, fire in the fireplace is a really good thing. Fire on the couch is a really bad thing. Call 911, smoke alarm goes off, those things. It's not the fire that's the problem. It's the location of the fire. And God loves us enough to want us to tend the vineyard so the foxes don't come in and do damage that will be real for a very long time. It's a poem that comes to us from an entirely different universe and world. An ethic that is altogether otherworldly that apart from the Holy Spirit you will not be able to understand. Seven verse 10, I am my loves and his desire is for me. Like that is where this desire is supposed to be played out. And metaphorically, this is true. God's desire is for you to be redeemed, to be his. And Song of Solomon speaks of legitimate sexual desire for one's love, how it's legitimate. You don't need to be wary of it. Like desire for intimacy that way is good and it is right. Like we should, as God's people, embrace the song's sexual nature. But what's happening here is more than that. It's like they're unfolding and returning us to the words of Genesis, that they were naked and were not ashamed. And that now, as people who've been redeemed by the Lord, this is what we must recover and pursue. That sexual ethic. And being naked and unashamed does not mean that you're really good at CrossFit. Or you gave up carbs for Lent and now look like a million bucks because of it. That's not what it's talking about here. It's the purity, it's the innocence, it's the proper placement of knowing that you are involved in a relationship called marriage that is doing things the way God designed for them to be. Naked and unashamed. It's the closest we get back to the Garden of Eden in the rest of the Bible, the poetry and Song of Solomon. It's the closest we get back. Here's from the ESV study Bible. The fall of mankind damaged every aspect of human lives. I mean, brokenness everywhere. And God's work of redemption aims to restore every aspect to its proper functioning. God's goal is that romantic love, with all its potential pain, degradation, should be an arena of employment for his, enjoyment, sorry, for his redeemed people. It's to be enjoyed. Now let's just be honest for a minute. Let's look at what has happened and we have said, God, we don't want your design. We reject your design. What do we have as a result of that? We have hookup culture. We have sexual assault. We have deep regret. 
We have relationships that are just supposed to be a casual dating, let's get to know each other, but left unimaginable scars because of taking this and not guarding the vineyard and not waiting to awaken your love in its right place. We have adultery. We have pornography. We have no-fault divorce. Physical, mental abuse in the confines of of a marriage relationship. We have fights going on right now about whether or not a boy can use a girl's bathroom and vice versa. Who can play women's sports? Which sounds strange, who can play women's sports? If you just asked a random person 20 years ago, who can play women's sports, they'd go, just a trick question. Women? Not now. But it's not new, back in 1 Corinthians. First century, Paul's writing to the church about sexual brokenness. Isn't it amazing what happens when everything gets out of design? And we try our hardest to sanitize it, to make it okay. It's, oh, well, they're consenting. Oh, love is love. Oh, why is it a big deal? Or, oh, there's starving children in the world. Why are we worried about this? When all around us, we just see brokenness and brokenness and brokenness. But God wants to restore that and to repair that and to rebuild that. And guess who he calls to be the ones who carry that torch? His people in the confines of marriage. See, believers in Christ can freely embrace this gift of sexual intimacy in the context of marriage and have no shame. Now, this may require some work and some difficulty and some mentors and some prayer and some counseling and some confession, you know, where you're seeking forgiveness and healing you know, from your past sins. That's available to you in Christ. Again, the vineyard is not forever ruined. That's not a biblical category. It's restored. It may require really trust and freedom within a newly formed marriage relationship. Or kind of a rebuild is what's taking place. But from the start, the Song of Solomon shows us that actually can be done. Like God's blessings of Christ are for us. And this absolutely is included in our relationships, especially the one that's most important, that being marriage. Again, we're told that husbands are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And therefore, there's this idea that the love expressed for our wives' husbands points to something greater, and that's Christ's love for his people. We could say that Song of Songs is a song that celebrates a royal marriage. Solomon was the king, and some people think that maybe Solomon either had this written about him or he wrote it much later in his life after he had been through a gajillion wives at one time and concubines and all these things. In the book of Ecclesiastes, he says, I've tried everything and none of it fulfills, and maybe here at last he's going, this is what I finally realized is God's design and that it is good and that it is right. And he was the king. But did you know that every Christian in this room has also experienced a royal wedding at your conversion? When you became a bride of the king. The scriptures refer to us as the bride of Christ. What an amazing thing to hear, an amazing thing to know, and God's love for his bride is passionate and tremendous and real. God has a people, he's always had a people throughout the scriptures, and he calls them his bride. Now, not everyone in this room is a husband, not everyone in this room is a wife. 
Not everyone in this room is a mom, not everyone in this room is a dad, but if you're a Christian, every person in this room is a bride. And you have a groom and his name is Jesus. That's a biblical metaphor and category for us. We see marriages throughout scripture to point us to something. Hosea's marriage to Gomer, we'll get there in a few weeks. Solomon's marriage to his bride intentionally symbolizes God's relationship with Israel and now his relationship with the church. It doesn't just allude to God's covenant with his people, but the entire book celebrates one of the greatest mysteries of the universe the Bible calls marriage. Paul writes that marriage is a mystery that points to the love that Christ has for the church. He says this mystery is profound in Ephesians 5. And I'm saying it refers to Christ in the church. And applied in the Song of Solomon, Solomon the line of David points to the ultimate son of David, the Christ, who would give his life for his bride. Now I understand, I'm just, you know, I'm just a regular guy that probably thinks just some of the same thoughts you do when you read the Bible. Like this reading may weird you out a little. I just want to kind of acknowledge that it can sound a little strange. It doesn't feel right to equate like this love, especially in the bounds of marriage that Solomon's talking about with the love that Christ has for the church. It just almost sounds kind of strange at the surface, but we got to reprogram our minds here. We need to realize that marriage is a mystery, again, that points to the intensity of God's love for his people, and that love is pure. Like it's perfect. Like we don't even have a definition for how perfect it is. Like the fact that that God loves his own, that his love is for everyone, like it's for the whole world, but it's specifically carried out for his bride, for his people. That even sounds a little weird to us at first, because again, because our idea of love is different than God's. We, all, we think in terms of fairness and categories and, and, and all these type of things, and we've, we've kind of formed our view of God that way, when God's view of God is that he is going to express himself and to show his glory and redeem his people in the way that he pleases and that brings him glory. And that's good news for all who are in Christ, who, who will one day come to know Christ. You're not just a random people that Jesus died for. You're the church to which he sought after. It's a great book called From Heaven He Came Forth and Sought Her. From Heaven He Came Forth and Sought Her that I would recommend to you to read. See, that love is pure. Today, we can only think of sex oftentimes in pornographic terms. Due to this over-sensualized and sexualized culture we live in, but sex as God created it is pure and holy and part of what makes a marriage marriage. It points us to God. And it's also meant to give us insight to Christ's love for the church. Paul wrote this, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. But that's the point of all this, he's saying, to sum it up, and here's the, here is the, the big design. Each one of you is to love his wife as himself and the wife to respect her husband. A mutual giving and showing of love. When a Christian husband faithfully fulfills his role to lead and love his wife, and when a Christian wife responds to that love by respecting her husband, it puts the gospel on display in a way no other human institution can. It's a visible portrait that God has given us of the invisible reality of the union between Christ and the church. Like marriage itself, it's not just for procreation, even though that is part of it. 
It's not just for companionship, even though it's part of it. It's not just for sexual fulfillment, even though it's part of it. It is to point to the world the invisible reality of Christ's love to the church. And this is true throughout scripture. Marriage is treated as a metaphor for God's relationship to his people. Like the prophet Hosea's own marriage to the faithless person called a woman named Gomer was intended to be a living parable of God's commitment to faithless, failing Israel. Israel elsewhere is described as God's beloved. Jeremiah 11, Jeremiah 12, in whom he enters with a marriage covenant, Ezekiel chapter 16. The Song of Solomon follows the biblical pattern set forth in Genesis, in which sexual fulfillment is to be found between a male and a female who are husband and wife bound together in the context of marriage. And this understanding is critical for understanding sexual ethics. The Genesis, really it's important that the Genesis account makes it clear that the female sex, the female gender, was created to literally be the opposite of her male counterpart, to actually be different, to be the opposite. That's why Adam, when Eve was created, was first like, whoa. It's like the first ever, whoa baby, hubba hubba hubba, created in the history of the world. Read Genesis, it's there. The woman is like the man in many ways, but she's also opposite to the man in very obvious ways. The complementarity they share is the basis of the intimacy of the sexual union. And it's made to last. For love, here's from Song of Solomon, is as strong as death. Jealousy is un, as unrelenting as Sheol. Love's flames are fiery flames, an almighty flame, a huge torrent cannot extinguish love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If a man were to give all his wealth for love, it would be utterly scorned. You know what we just read there, basically? Traditional marriage vows. For better, for worse. In sickness or in health. For richer, for poorer, or in plenty of, or for plenty or in want. From this day forward, I pledge to you my faithfulness for as long as we both shall live. One random, like, just kind of mean thing, I guess it's viewed as by our culture that I do, is I don't let couples alone do their own vows that I marry. Like, if you want to do your own vows, that's fine. You're just going to do the traditional vows, too. Like, you can read them to each other, and that's fine. Then we go, okay, now we're going to do real vows. Because it's usually, you know, usually handwritten, like, you know, we do our own vows as, like, you know, ever since I saw you as my waitress at Steak and Shake, I never could look at you the same. You know, it's just like that kind of stuff, and it's like, you know, you are the, you know, the apple of my eye, and you, you know, make me tingle inside, and you know, I quiver in my liver, and all, all, all these kind of things, right? I mean, it's just like this kind of romantic-y sort of, all, all, it's just kind of that, right? And you're just sitting there like, oh, this is so nice, so sweet, okay, whatever. You know, it's like our favorite song, as the lyrics of our favorite song go, then you like quote Luke Bryan for two lines. It's like, really? Okay, it's like, okay, great. But that, is a, that, that stuff is sentimental and it's meaningful. But when things hit the fan, the mushy ain't gonna do. When things hit the fan, you remind me of this song by Taylor Swift, you know, it's not gonna, it's not gonna do it. Instead it's, hey, guess what? Our love is strong as death. A huge torrent can't extinguish love. 
Or as Paul put in 1 Corinthians 13, love never fails. He says the allurements of a palace, that kind of luxury, can't, it can't break our bond and commitment as in the grass is not greener on the other side. I didn't get married too young and mess this up because maybe there's somebody else out there for me. Marriage is a gift of God. And it's to be founded on loyalty and commitment which then allows the delight and the romance and the love and the feelings and the passion to actually flourish as is fitting image for God's relationship with his people in both the Old and New Testament. But you can't talk about the union with Christ in the church and not talk about human failure. Because God is not coming to redeem a pure bride. He's coming to make a bride pure. Men and women. The bride of Christ. And we learn that human love is not enough. It's not enough. Like marriage is not the ultimate fulfillment. Sex is not the, the ultimate joy. The joy he's talking about here is not even in sex, it's in marriage, it's in his partner, it's in the wife, it's in the husband. It's not the sex that brings joy, no, that's part of it, it's, it's marriage. But it's not enough human love. The marriage institution is not the ultimate fulfillment that Jesus is. And I know that kind of sounds like middle school around the campfire, like, Jesus is my love. You know, I, I know it's so like, sentimental, and, and it sounds like it's just kind of like preacher talk. This is the story of the Bible, that the true lover, the Lord, stands at the door and knocks to his people and says, please let me in because I desire you. In a way that's perfect, in a way that's pure, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The one place where the song pauses and explicitly reflects on romantic love and expresses the need for total, exclusive commitment. Especially one that God has for us. Set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. I'll read this again. Jealousy is unrelenting as shield. Love's flames are fiery flames, an almighty flame. The song's instruction of human romance as an almighty flame is a more beautiful and stirring account of sexuality and marriage than anything our culture could ever come up with. Our culture is pressing the church to abandon all of these things, to throw away what Christians have always believed. But we look to the scriptures over and over again, and it's undeniable that to do things God's way to recover and pursue what's been broken and what's been lost is the best way. So I don't even see it as God putting rules around us, even though he could do that because he's God and he knows better, he created us and created all this. I don't even see it as that. When I read this, I see it as God setting us up to return to the Garden of Eden, to be naked and unashamed and feel full human flourishing as he made us to be. We don't gotta wake up and go, oh no, where did he go? What if I'm pregnant? What if we weren't consenting because we were both drinking? What if, what if, what if, what if? Or instead we're unashamed. And here's the good news for all of us. That recovery and pursuit can begin today. The God does not see you as simply a damaged vineyard 
but a vineyard to be tended to, to be recovered, and to be rebuilt. And how does he do it? By knocking on the door of his beloved and allowing his kindness to lead us to repentance. God cares deeply about this. It's the first thing we see out of the gate when he makes humans. Adam, Eve, made for each other, different. Be fruitful, multiply. They became one flesh, we're told. That's, that's more than sex, but it's not less. So let's be unashamed to say God knows, he's clear, and his way is better. It's gonna get you beat up, it's gonna, it's gonna make you be called a bigot, it's gonna be, be nice anyways, and preach Jesus anyways. I'm much more concerned with what God affirms than I am with the culture affirms. Much more concerned. Let that be true of all of us. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful you have a design. And it's clear. But we know that we have a design of our own in our sin. And it's whatever we want. That's our design. What we want. We want to feel in the moment. Or we want to measure up to with others' expectations. I know there's folks in this room that probably so desperately just want to be loved, want to belong, want to, it just, they, they just want, if, if it's affection from their spouse, if it's attention from guys or girls in their class, like whatever it might be. But Lord, let us remember that ultimately the attention we have is from you, because we're your bride. From heaven, you came forth and sought us, and you made us your own and redeem the people for yourself. So now by your grace, you call us to recover and pursue. So Lord, I ask that'll be the reality of our lives, that you will heal brokenness. For the people in this room that have, just based on what we talked about today, that realize there's some major work to be done in terms of just the past, and in terms of things that they've been through as the foxes wreaked havoc on the vineyard. Lord, I ask that they see you today. And they begin the journey with other Christian brothers and sisters who will love them as you love them. Of healing, of restoration, and then of flourishing. Your grace is greater than our guilt. And I ask that we'll receive that and believe that together today. That it's for us and for your glory. Our designer, our creator, the one who does have and know what is best for us. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing some good news about our God.